I took the lead. You're listening to Power in Heels with Macy McLean and Whitney Coonan. Thank you to our sponsor, Mackenzie Lake Lawyers. Hey, and welcome to this week's episode of Power in Heels. I'm Whitney. And I'm Macy. Each week, we select one woman who is a trailblazer in her own life or career and bring her onto the show. Not only will we uncover her secrets to success, we also hope to inspire other young students just like Macy and I. To learn more about our show and to hear the stories of other remarkable women, check out our website, www.powerinheels.ca or our Instagram at powerinheels underscore radio. Without further ado, here is Macy to introduce this week's incredible guest. She's a sexual health and consent educator, speaker, and social change entrepreneur. She's the host of Sexy Sexual health trivia and founder of the inner development project we are thrilled to have the wonderful samantha biddy joining us on the show today thank you so much for being here samantha hi sorry i am like so awkward after <laughs> an intro of me i'm like who's that bitch like hey, hi, hi. <laughs> all good I'm like, hey, hi 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 <laughs> so thank i just want to start off and maybe we'll just talk a little bit about um, your childhood, so where you grew up, and what your interests were at the time. Uh, so I grew up in Scarborough, in Toronto, uh, East End, um, to a mixed-race family, like an immigrant family. So my father is from Trinidad, and my mom is a, a settler Canadian, like Northern European descent. Um, and yeah, I spent most of my childhood in Scarborough, Grew up downtown, or not grew up downtown, moved downtown, like as an adult, like, I don't, I don't know, like, what was the, what, what were my interests? Yeah. As, <laughs> as oh my gosh. Um, well, you know what, I've actually been having this conversation with people a lot lately, um, especially as it relates to kind of like the racial justice uprising, kind of coming more into a mainstream consciousness and and just what it looks like to do social change work or like quote unquote social justice work and when it's your work and all that. And I was like, you know, when I was a kid, like my earliest memories are often of kind of being someone who was like a, a defender of like the underdog kind of vibe. Like if there was ever a kid who was being bullied, who was often me, but if there was ever a kid being bullied, I always made sure to be friends with them. I think the first time I ever called out racism, I was like eight years old. Like uh, as a kid, I was always just really interested in people and like um, talking to people, um, knowing their stories, uh, understanding their feelings, that sort of thing. Um, I actually had like a bit of a, a difficult childhood. So I guess that's why it's hard to answer that question. But uh, as it relates to like what we're going to talk about today, um, it's always kind of been in me to be really outspoken and um a bit disruptive like disruptive of the uh rules and uh to kind of like look out for other people so you know i i think that 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 ultimately translated into where i am now but uh my teachers thought i should be a politician and i wanted to be a teacher 
So. <laughs> oh, wow. I think that's really interesting. I can definitely see how those traits are now coming out and uh, you're using that in your career today. That's really interesting. It's not even a choice. Like, I think it's like <laughs> I'm, I'm in, I didn't choose my career because of my disposition. Like my disposition chose my mm -hmm. career. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so when exactly did you decide that you wanted to pursue a career as a sexual health educator? Um, I think it, it was like a, it was a bit of a convoluted path to the extent of, uh, I have always been interested in relationships. Like I was saying, I was always really interested in connecting. Um, I've always been interested in sex. Like I was very interested in sex from a young age. I like learned about sex from Cosmo, which translates into why I'm a sex educator now. Um, but originally when it occurred to me that I wanted to pursue any type of career as it relates to sex and relationships, I thought I was going to be a sex therapist. And because of the kind of uh, difficulties that I'd had in school, through high school, um, and where I originally ended up in college, which was in fashion design school, uh, I entered into like a liberal arts program to the ideal was to bridge into university. So I was, I didn't graduate high school and I was a fashion school dropout and I was like, okay, I'll do this liberal arts uh, certificate one year and then I'll use that to pivot into university and go into social work or psychology or something like that. Uh, all with the end goal of like, okay, I want to do sex therapy. And then once I did one year in liberal arts, what that is for anyone who doesn't know is that you have exposure to all different types of disciplines. So sociology, psychology, anthropology, geography, like whatever it is, all the kind of quote unquote soft sciences. And I really thrived in those types of learning environments. And I got a lot from having such an intersectional uh, window into imagining like knowledge and things like that. And I ultimately ended up doing a two-year diploma and all the while I was like, how do I make this about sex ed? Like, how do I make this about sexual health? And so I kept applying to Planned Parenthood of Toronto to be one of their peer educators. And I eventually got into that co like a cohort in maybe 2010, 2011. I interviewed a few times <laughs> and they kept kind of like having me come back. And uh, finally I was a good fit for it. And once I got into the, that type of training and that type of environment that's like rooted in anti-oppression, that was rooted in community building, um, rooted in lived experience as well. Like not just like scientific pathological understandings or of people. Uh, and I was working one-on-one -on -one with people who were accessing sexual health care. I was like, nah, this is it. Like, I wanna, I wanna do it like this. I wanna be an educator. And my first job though in sex ed was in a sex toy shop. I lied about my age at 17 to get a job at a sex toy shop called Cupid's Boutique in Scarborough. It's still there, <laughs> it's still popping. But that long ago, we rented porn. Like people would literally come in and rent porn. That's how long ago it was. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's quite the story. Now, I mean, a lot of people would assume that your job is all about promoting and educating safe sex, which of course that's a part of it but it must be much more than that. Can you tell our listeners about how it's different? Totally. So um, 
a lot of times when we imagine safe, you know, quote unquote, safe sex, um, even when we shift the language to safer sex, right? Acknowledging that no spaces, no, nothing is like, you know, quote unquote, safe, it's like safer, like choices we can make to make sex safer. It's still always rooted in this like risk averse way. Um, and it's often rooted in a very like physiological imagining of what safer sex is. So like avoiding pregnancy, avoiding sexually transmitted infections, avoiding, it's always about avoiding. And a lot of that has to do with like really, uh, what's the right word for it? Narrow and oppressive, uh, colonized forms of education so like when we learn about sex ed in schools um the people who are teaching it are people who have also been raised in those environments in those spaces and um there's like no conversations about pleasure and there's no conversations or very few conversations about the role of pleasure not just in like sex as a thing that we do but like in safer sex so a lot of what my work is uh, is trying to have a pleasure-centered approach, which I kind of articulate it like with like a finger on the pulse of risk aversion, where it acknowledges that there's risks, it acknowledges that there's like undesired outcomes to different choices that we make as it relates to sex and all of the choices we make in life. But that pleasure is a super important aspect of uh, why we, pleasure is why we f right and 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 whether that's like physical pleasure or like emotional pleasure or connection or like resources like trying to access resources whatever that is that is all rooted in pleasure and i like to talk about it because um safer sex isn't just physiological it's emotional and our sexual health is not separate from our emotional health and i say this all the time it's not separate from our overall health and well-being and the more we can diversify or like open up conversations about safer sex that acknowledge that it's emotional and it's spiritual and it's like mental and it's all those things and not just physiological, then we can start really talking about safer sex. Like consent culture is about safer sex that acknowledges pleasure in all those different ways, not just physically as important part of the conversation. So um, I think that answers that. Yeah, no, that was great. <laughs> yeah, that was very insightful. Um, I'm curious to know, I don't know if you have an average day on the job or not, but if so, what would you say is an average day or what does an average day look like for you? So I definitely don't have like an average day because, you know, fast forward from that, uh, that time in, in college and being a, a volunteer sex educator, it's like since then, my career has changed a lot. Um, it was only in the last few years that I was uh, subsisting on like paid work being a sex educator. So I was a volunteer for a long time. I did a number of like outreach and intervention type projects that were all unfunded. Um, so I always had other jobs. Uh, and uh, eventually I worked as a uh, counselor and as an educator and as someone who trains other sex educators and all that I'm presently an independent sex educator uh, meaning that I work as uh, someone in possession of my content and the way that I teach and it's I teach in institutions but I'm not connected to any one institution 
And so depending on what the project is, is going to impact what like a regular workday is. So for me right now, my current projects would be, I'm, I'm building a, a sex ed video series. So it's called Sexy Sexual Health Education. And also too, just so you know, the name of it is kind of a joke. Like when I was trying to think of a, what to name trivia, uh, I named it Sexy Sexual Health Trivia because it's funny. Like, because it's just <laughs> like, because anytime we're trying to talk about sex in the public sphere, it's always like dildo bingo or like whatever. And I was just like, okay, this is like, it's like sexy sexual health education. It's hard to say and all that <laughs> extra. And so don't worry about something. Um, so right now I'm building a video series called Sexy Sexual Health Education for a couple of different universities. And what that is, is like videos, they're like eight to 10 minutes long on different topics. And um, obviously this is audio, but if anybody sees a picture of me, they know that I, I do my work in what I consider to be drag. Like Samantha Biddy is a character. It's not like the same person as Samantha Varel. It's kind of like a, that's my real name. Um, for one, Biddy is easier to say. Biddy is also slang for girl. And it's this idea of like, okay, so all the things that Samantha Varel is afraid of, Samantha Biddy is not afraid of. And so that character, so the videos are, you know, sometimes it's hours of makeup and hair and all of that that go into it. Um, I promise I'm answering your question. Uh, so let's say I'm shooting a video. On a day that I'm shooting a video, what an average day that I'm shooting a video would look like is I wake up early, I do my admin. So answering emails, on Instagram, um, drinking coffee, like so much coffee and uh, whatever kind of like graphic work I need to do. And then I have a nap. And then especially in a pandemic reality, I have a nap and then I wake up, I drink Red Bull, I put my makeup on, I listen to music and I get into character, right? And then I might shoot a video and that will take, uh, you know, anywhere from an hour to two hours. And that might be a work day for a video day. Uh, but if I have an event, that's a different, that's a different kind of day. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a pretty cool day. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> Except for the now, admin part. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's true. <laughs> what would you say is your favorite part about your role? Ooh, I don't know. I have so many favorite parts. It's uh, hard to pick one, I know. <laughs> I, yeah, like I, my favorite part of my job. So, okay. When I worked in clinics, I would have very close connection to impact. So it's like everything that I had to share and that everyone shares, everything that someone shared with me, I was either like directly connecting them to resources or information, or I was supporting them before their abortion or like whatever it was. Like I had, there was that immediate direct um, impact that I could experience with that person. And when I became an independent educator and my work became more media-based or more event-based, I didn't get that same kind of, picture of the ways that um, people got to experience accessing sexual health in a way that wasn't harmful to them. Because that's the thing too. It's like, I decided to be a sex educator because I had a terrible experience accessing sexual health care as a teenager. And I was like, I never want someone else to go through that. I want to be on the other end of that. And so the favorite, my favorite part of my job now is when I do an event or I post a video or I do a, a post of some kind that is like talking about sex ed and relationships in this way. And people reach out to me to be like, Hey, like that really helped me. Or like, 
because you did that condom demo, I felt like I could use a condom when I was having sex with someone for the first time. Like just stuff like that, where it's like, uh, where I get to still feel that real um, connection and, and change that can happen in a person's life when they aren't shamed or they aren't um, made to feel like they're wrong in some way because they want to be sexual or because they're exploring a relationship or, or they did or didn't make the choice that they thought they should, you know? So hearing, hearing, hearing that people actually get something out of it is, is, is the part I like the most. Well, I would love to also know maybe what the most challenging part of your job would be. The most challenging part of my job is to keep my stuff separate. Working in Antio, like I do, I do a lot of work also around uh, anti-racism and anti-oppression in different ways, which is not something that I feel separate from. And so that can like bleed into my efficacy as an educator and as a trainer. Uh, and as it relates to sex and relationship stuff, it's like, bringing in a certain amount of my stuff is good and important and it makes it relatable. And also like my lived experience informs what I know I need to teach people about, <laughs> um, for sure, for sure. But making sure that I'm not acting from a hurt place or, uh, and like acting, I mean, creating content, uh, counseling, educating. Uh, I have to make sure that I have my, my experiences, my traumas, my baggage in check. And that's not always easy to do, you know? Um, sometimes we don't know that we're operating from a hurt place, um, especially in our current climate, you know? So keeping myself collected whilst also still being like a human being amongst human beings, like that, that would be the hardest part. For sure. Um, now, um, how has your job changed in recent years? I mean, it's changed a lot in recent years. So I left the clinic sector maybe 2017, I'm going to say, maybe 2018, I became like fully independent, like no clinic work, no institutional work at all. Uh, so that was a big change because I am essentially an entrepreneur. So I have to create programming that people connect with and has actual like viability. So I'm currently represented by the National Speakers Bureau. Um, and that changed my access to space. Uh, in terms of being able to be connected, like my work to be connected with universities and stuff like that. Like Canada and like Toronto and everything is like a very gatekeeping kind of place. So you need to have access to be able to do uh, work. But um, in terms of what I talk about, uh, well, with the pandemic uh, and everybody kind of moving inside <laughs> to a certain extent, yeah. it, it changed the ways that we relate. Um, I love the way that it has brought things like sexting and the importance and role of sex and connection in our lives into mainstream conversations. Um, so that's changed my work a lot. There's more openness and more kind of like, uh, there's a bit, there's a different, there's a difference in the stigma around um, sex as a, a meaningful aspect of our well-being and stuff like that. So, I would say that um, being media-based, right? Like being yeah, predominantly media-based as opposed to being IRL with people, like in person with people. Yeah, but I feel like my work's always changing. I'm always trying to respond yeah. to my environment, right? Well, exactly. Yeah, definitely. No, of course, it's really good and important to change and adapt as times do as well. Um, now, you just mentioned, obviously, the pandemic and all the changes that have been happening really recently. Um, now, 
this whole pandemic has thrown the whole dating world into a spin essentially and it must be i mean it is a lot harder it's different in the way that people meet other people and go out on dates and you know with the whole social bubbles and wearing a mask and you no know, touching all this so do you have any tips for people on how to navigate this new dating world what i've observed in a covid reality is that this there's this thing, there's this illness that people want to avoid that can be spread through kissing, touching, closeness, which typically speaking, we do when we're having different kinds of sex, right? And um, because, and not to say that COVID isn't stigmatized because it absolutely does have health stigma to it. It's not stigmatized in the same way that, that sexually transmitted infection is. So people have a certain level of comfort and social uh, support to negotiate COVID consent. And so people have kind of normalized these conversations of like, so like, what's your social distancing like? Or like, are you going on dates? Are you, you know, are you working frontline? Are you like, it's normalized asking questions in like that kind of what I call like negotiating safer sex way where it's like, what are the circumstances in the situation? What are the power dynamics? What are the risks? Have you thought about how this impacts others around you? How it impacts yourself? How it impacts your access to resources? People are reflecting on that for themselves and then making, ideally making informed decisions based on that information. And that process is a practice in um, safer sex negotiation and consent negotiation. And so people are learning these tools um, that can be applied to, it's like, oh, well, now that, now that we've got, to talking about uh, our COVID safety, like what's up with the STIs, <laughs> you know, like what's up with uh, anal sex? Like they're just like, it just starts to open up lines of communication in a different way that people maybe weren't having. And so I'd say that that has been a, a change I've seen. People are still like doing what they did before. Like it's, well, it's quite yeah, polarized. Exactly. Now, I do want to ask, uh, what age group do you think it is appropriate or most important to start educating at? around sex yeah oh i, I don't like know that's a big debated topic right so i wanted to ask you in your opinion on that yeah i don't work with children um mm. that's never been my uh, demographic but when we talk about uh you know it's not so much necessarily talking about sex like however we imagine sexual activity or sexual expression but from as early as someone's born and you're talking to a baby, you can talk to them in a way when you're teaching them what their body parts are, like that's relevant. It's like, and the names that those body parts are, that's, that's sex education, right? Like that teaches people from an early age that their body isn't something to be ashamed of, that their body is something functional and beautiful. And I say functional meaning however it functions. That's not to say only if it functions in the way that you're not seeing this because nobody can see, but I'm air quoting functional. Like <laughs> it's, it's about your body operates the way that it operates. It's holding you, it's holding your spirit. So introducing that from as early on is, as possible is, is, is necessary. And I think great. Cause like a lot of our learning around sex is unlearning, you yes. know, <laughs> it's unlearning the ways that we were taught to relate to our bodies, especially if our body doesn't align with like a cisgendered white able scenario, you know, right. like exactly. the further away we are from that, the more shame we're likely to have put on us, which we're not born with that. <laughs> <laughs>
So as early as possible, having conversations like, yeah, this is your arm, it does this. This is your vagina, it does that. This is your penis, it does that. When we teach holistically that way, it's so much easier to then broach the conversations that come with body awareness and body exploration as it relates to sexuality or sexual expression. Um, and then bodily autonomy, teaching consent and bodily autonomy is possible from day one. One of my mentors has a two and a half year old and I've known them since she was, the baby was like one or something and watching her parent reparents me because <laughs> she has so many conversations with her daughter that are rooted not in reward and punishment or good or bad. It's about choices and outcomes, you know? And the more we teach children and people to think critically from a young age about their emotions, about the space they take up, about the space around them, the better equipped they're going to be to make decisions that are going to be uh, effective in life for what they want. And so to your point about like uh, relationships, it's like, let's say there isn't a healthy relationship in the home and there's conflict in the home. It's like, we learn that. And it's not about those things not happening, but it's about talking about it and being like, I said this thing because this, you know, and, and inviting, inviting accountability from a really early age is mm -hmm. how we have healthier relationships. So. Yeah, of course. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And just instilling these um, these things to our kids at a young age, I think really will impact them for, for the future. I already see it. <laughs> like I already see because our generation, so I'm quite a bit older than you, I presume. Um, even working with university students, I see such a significant difference in their um, acceptance of different ways of being than the way that I was kind of taught. Like we're a very resourced generation. And so people who now enter into parenting or people who parent, it's like, their kids are so dope because they're like, oh, all we had to do was talk to you about it. <laughs> As opposed to just being like, no. And then that's it. Like, you know, it's like young people are one of the most oppressed classes in society. So when we empower young people, and I mean that from like age one, age two, to make decisions, it, it changes everything for sure, for sure. And they have so much empathy like, yes, exactly. So much from them. Yeah. So what is the most common question that youth tend to ask you? The most common question I get, not just from youth, but like across the board, like interviewers in, in news articles, everything is always like, how do I have better sex? And, uh, or like, how do I, how do I have better sex? Or like, how do I please my partner or whatever? And the answer is always whatever it is that's bothering you or going on in your life outside of your sex life, deal with that, you know, like yep. read a book about whatever it is that you don't have a strong grasp or like that you're not feeling good about in every other aspect of your life. And that's going to make your sex life better because you have the capacity to be present and sex is about presence. Um, and it's about experience, not performance. So, uh, strengthening your intuition, things like that. Um, it's not like one physical thing that you can do to like make you better at sex. Like <laughs> yeah, there's no, things you can do. <laughs> <laughs> there's things you can do, but it really is, you know, paying attention, asking questions and being aware of yourself. That's no, a really good way to look at it. Um, that's some good advice, honestly. Yeah. 
Now, you were mentioning earlier when we were talking about um, younger students. Um, so I would love to get your opinion and your thoughts on the current Ontario school uh, sex ed curriculum. So what do you think of it? Maybe do you think it's lacking or what are your opinions on that? Yeah, I mean, the Ontario school curriculum, uh, quite, you know, quite contentious, like having it, it, the last time it got updated was, I don't know, it was like 1992. And then it was like, we're like, it's 2018 y'all. Like, can we maybe include the internet? Like, I don't know, um, this is relevant. But, and I mean, granted, like, I know people who advised on it, and I think that there's a lot of really great content in there that uh, decenters heterosexuality, it decenters uh, cisgenderedness, it decenters uh, able-bodiedness. Like, there's a lot of things that came into it that created a more comprehensive picture of what it is to educate about sexual health and relationships. But my main criticism about it is, like, far more symbolic, right? It's like, sex ed as far as i'm concerned is only as as you know quote unquote good as the person teaching it and so if you have a teacher who has like a comprehensive sex ed book but they have internalized or even overt homophobia then how are they going to teach how are they going to teach that content mm -hmm. right it's there's I was about to say, there's nothing unique about what I teach. There's a lot unique about what I do. I'm an exceptional sex educator. Like really everybody loves me, <laughs> but what makes my education effective, I believe is that it, the way I teach addresses the barriers that prevent people from learning about sex ed or things that are going to impact their sexual health in a way that they can feel safe and internalized and taken. So if you're in this space, your classroom, and you're with this teacher who you see every day, who's an authority figure, you know, which plays into like certain patriarchal and paternalistic narratives you might have around uh, good or bad or whatever it is, formal learning environment, and they're like, okay, let's talk about this like really uh, typically thought of as like shameful or private thing. That's not necessarily the right space to receive information in or to bring your full self to. And to me, comprehensive sex education is about openness and it's not uh, constrained. There's like uh, space to explore and make mistakes and all those things. And you might not necessarily feel comfortable or confident doing that with someone you then have to see in the next, uh, the next, we don't even have a break. We don't even have recess anymore. It's COVID. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I haven't even left my desk. We we're just talking about masturbation, but now we're going to talk about arithmetic. Like that's weird, yeah. right? So yeah. um, I think that like having sex ed in schools is really, really important symbolically. It's an invitation into that conversation. Um, but we have to equip teachers to teach it in a way that aligns with those principles. So it's like the new curriculum alleges principles of, anti-oppression, quote unquote, inclusion, all those things. But it's like, we have to equip teachers with the principles to teach it. They have to um, be able to unpack their own sex shame. They're all, like, I'm a sex educator. I've been talking about sex for 10 years as my career. I have sex shame, you know, I have biases. We all grew up in a very sick, racist, colonized place, no matter where you are on earth. So if we're not actively addressing that internalized, uh, shame, et cetera, with the people teaching it, then there's barriers to it being effective. It's still important that it's there. Um, I love that we were able to get it pushed through to an extent, but that's my, that's my thoughts and, and feelings about that. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, of course. Um, do you have any advice for people that may have questions, 
but yet they don't have anyone to turn to, or maybe they're just honestly afraid to ask. Totally. I think that like the internet is a really great resource for uh, accessing education that is going to represent and speak to your lived experience, right? So a lot of times we see certain groups left out of mainstream conversations about sexual health and relationships and consent, predominantly, you know, folks who live with disabilities, black folks, fat folks, like all that, right? So um, what I love about social media tools like Instagram, uh, Twitter, et cetera, is that you can find people who are educating from a place that reflects your experience, whether that's like a trans experience or whatever. So I think using the internet, but with that, using your critical thinking skills, right? Like there's a lot of messy stuff on the internet, um, a lot of misinformation, a lot of like harmful information. And so it's like doing your due diligence and then like finding not just me, but like people like me. I have like, there's a lot of people like me out there who, you know, a lot of my education has come from YouTube educators because we don't have formal textbooks about what it's like to live with certain types of bodies and have sex and whatever. So I'm like, okay, well, this person has that experience. So I'm going to sign up for their Patreon and, and make sure I give them a little bit of money and I'm going <laughs> to learn from them because I don't have that experience. Right. And so just find, find your, find, find the people who are saying things that make you feel good as well yes, of course yeah right. and um, i mean with you know the increased access to internet and social media um all over the world the way that we have this conversation has really changed i think so and i and of course you know there is like you just said misinformation out there that needs to be vetted that you need to be careful of but i do think overall uh social media and the internet have you know really positively possibly changed the way that we have this conversation would you agree yeah, absolutely. I, again, I'm like nodding as if people uh, listening to this can see me nodding. Um, I'm <laughs> nodding because yes, like it has created so much more representation uh, for voices that previously went unheard or silenced. And that is super important. Um, and also too, because any one educator is only human. You know, we make, we make mistakes. Like stuff I say um, it's not the whole picture ever. And there's stuff that I said two years ago, I would never say now because I've learned more. And, um, I think when we have access to so many different individuals, we can create our own collective wisdom that is rooted in values that we, uh, that we decide for ourselves are our values, yeah. not yeah. the ones given to us. Right. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's great. So what was true two decades ago about sexual pleasure is no longer true today uh, per se. And, um, you know, look at something like herpes. There's so much uh, disconnect in, in herpes research because of things like disclosure and what it looks like to, to scientifically inquire about things. And the ways that we talked about trans folks and their bodies and their healthcare when I was first starting out as a sex educator is completely different than how we talk today. And that was at the time, the most like, again, quote unquote, inclusive way to speak about things. And even that notion of inclusivity has been um, antiquated as far as I'm concerned. So I think it's acknowledging that it's acknowledging that the truth can be subjective and 
Um, and never taking just like any one word for anything being like, Oh, like that sounds good. I like it. Let me, let me look at this other, what this other person's saying. And, and just to kind of, sometimes you can find good sources of information where you're like, okay, like these are this, this like, so certain websites as an example, it's like, okay, I know that the politics of this organization align with my politics and their mission and their vision and all of that align with what I believe in. And so I'm going to trust the information that they have because they take accountability for their, when they're wrong, that sort of thing. So it's kind of like you can vet sources of information. So um, you also um, are the founder of the Inner Development Project. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So Inner Development Project, IDP, uh, on a hiatus right now, was a project that I started, um, I don't know how many years ago now, uh, that does outreach specifically with girls and non-binary youth or gender diverse youth. Um, it was predominantly in Scarborough in the West End, doing workshops like interactive type workshops around self-esteem, body image, healthy relationships. So both friendship and romantic. Uh, generally it was like 13 to 18 year olds and uh, using art, using media, using that sort of thing. And I started that project because through my work with Planned Parenthood specifically, you know, I'd be doing education sessions about birth control or about uh, Plan B or whatever it is. And the thing that always kept coming up was like so many, so much stress and anxiety um, around self-esteem or connected to self-esteem, body image, relationships. And it's just such a huge gap in our education is that like emotional intelligence piece that teaches us how to relate to ourselves and how to relate to others on our own terms. And so I kind of set out to teach critical thinking skills and emotional intelligence skills in a way that would be fun and in a way that wasn't like really boring and esoteric, which I failed at miserably when I first started. And, you know, just like based on stats, like we see a huge decline in girls and like feminized people's mental health starting at like age 10, 11. And it's often connected to sexism and, um, and that type of thing. And, that, and that's absolutely been my own experience too. It's like, it was around that age that I stopped kind of putting my hand up in class, you know, and we start kind of, uh, a lot of folks will moderate themselves. And, and so I just wanted to open up these conversations and, that, and that's what I did. So I offered that free programming. Um, I did it for as long as I could. Uh, and I hope I'll get to do it again, yeah. It sounds like a really awesome program. Oh yeah, those girls are dope. The <laughs> body image workshop was, I just want to share this because it was really good. Uh, I used to learn so much from these young people. Like they taught me so much. And one of the things like I do, like, have you ever seen an exquisite corpse? Like, do you know what that is? Like uh, the act uh, to the drawing picture. You know, when you fold a piece of paper and like in bunch and like you might draw the head and then you, you close it and then you pass it to a friend and they'll draw like the shoulders and then that sort of thing. And then you That's open it cool. up and you're like, what the is this? Like, it's like a whole <laughs> like different kind of creature or whatever. So the body image workshop was like that. And it was like, okay, draw your ideal hair and your ideal face. And then you close up the little book, you pass it to your friend. And then it's like, they open up a thing and they draw the ideal shoulders, the ideal breasts, the ideal whatever. And what we ended up with was like all these images of different ways that we decide what the ideal body is. And because of the nature of the activity, a lot of the bodies came out like with like, 
unintended proportions, missing limbs, like all sorts of different things. <laughs> and it opened up all these conversations about the different types of body ideals that we uh, ascribe to through media, through relationships and all of that. And this one girl coined the term, the Instagram ideal. So we were talking about like the model ideal, which is like, you know, thin and white and whatever. And then there's the Instagram ideal where it's like small waist, big butt, like all this. And just, I was like, this is like a 15 year old girl. And she has so much insight into the ways that the world has a gaze on her. And I think it's so important to have those conversations with young people because when we don't, that becomes the truth. And so that was kind of the, the spirit behind that work. Now, unfortunately, this interview does have to come to an end. But before we do that, we want to just give the mic over to you. And if there's any last words that you'd like to leave our listeners with, by all means, go ahead. Totally. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on here. I know that the focus is like career and like what, you know, women or folks can do in their careers. And I just want to say that uh, I had a really, really I've had a really, really successful and impactful couple of years, and that didn't happen for me in what um, I wanted to do in terms of like how I could make impact, how I could access individuals to like share this type of work. And that all changed for me when I invited all the different parts of myself into the work that I do. So when I realized that I'm like, you know, I love costume making and I love wig styling and I love makeup and I love performing. But when I was working in a clinic, it was like, I was asked to tone all those things down. And it's like, when I let my humor come into to the education around things that are like really serious and sterile, like all of those things. So the more I invited every aspect of myself, the more um, I could really connect with people in a way that not only made it fulfilling for me, but made it accessible for them. And my advice is like, never limit what it is about you that you can bring into your work or your life to be impactful. And also so importantly that your work isn't what you get paid to do because I did not get paid to do this work for a very long time. And had I stopped or had I not identified myself as somebody who was teaching sex ed or, or was trying to make an impact in sexual liberation, I wouldn't be where I am now. And I think it's really important to decentralize capitalism in the way that you, uh, in the way that you do your work. So, and volunteer, volunteer, volunteering is <laughs> one of the most important things you can do, not just for its impact, but for what it can give to you in terms of exposure to what might interest you and people who might interest you. Of course. Well, I do want to just say thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much to our listeners for listening today. We hope you all learned something new and even got a little bit inspired. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at powerinheels underscore radio, where we always reveal our next week's guest. And of course, our website, www.powerinheels.ca for more exclusive content. Thank you again to Samantha for joining us. My name is Whitney Coonan. And I'm Macy McLean. Thanks again, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks again to our sponsor, Mackenzie Lake Lawyers, combining strong traditions with fresh ideas.